Well, in our series, Custom Home, we're looking at how, in the same way you might build a custom house, God creates a customized spiritual pathway for each one of us in our journey to find higher purpose. So we picked that song today for a couple reasons. One, because the first time I'm interviewing um, Josh, he told me he's a huge reggae fan. So uh, we want to customize the service for him. And also, I love the words of that song, that uh, we need to emancipate ourselves from certain lies, certain challenges. Uh, there's a redemption song that Bob Marley speaks of that we're all longing for. So can we give a warm uh, welcome to my friend Josh Dieter? Josh, come on up. Good to see you, man. Thank you. Thank you. How awesome was that? Not, not, go- not many times that Chad asked, hey, what's one of your favorite songs and Albert sings it? That's right. You know? <laughs> so that more people are going to want to do their stories. Yeah, so. right. That's right. Well, tell us a little about your, your stories, a little bit different than the ones we've had last couple weeks. Um, what did God do in your life to create a customized journey to sort of draw you toward uh, finding him, finding purpose, finding what a connection with God was like? Yeah, sure. So thanks again for the opportunity. Um, so some of you who know me know I'm in financial planning and investment management. So my story is investment. And that is people investing in me. Um, so I started at a young age. Uh, my parents, the upbringing, all of that, we went to church. It's what we did. Um, never forced on us, but Sunday mornings, most Sunday mornings, we found ourselves in church. Um, my parents did their best to teach us you know, good principles, um, the buzzwords, integrity, morals, right from wrong, all those things. And not knowing that it was going on then, but looking back now, it's easy to see that they were teaching us those, those principles from what they believed, from what the Bible taught. So something must have stuck because when I was about 13 years old, I decided to make a commitment to Christ where I said a prayer, accepted Jesus into my heart, and said I was going to live by um, those certain principles. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast forward a few years through high school, I get into my late teens, early college, uh, early 20s into college, um, and no way to say it, but I strayed from my faith. I was probably like a lot of college kids were, where I started to find joy in other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, as many friends as I could have, uh, athletic accolades, uh, more parties, those mm-hmm. types of things. All along that uh, time while I was in college, I knew that there was something missing. There was a void inside, and I knew what that void was. Um, mm-hmm. But what I did is I tried to fill it up with more earthly joy, if you will, of mm-hmm. parties and friends. Um, uh, in, in sports. Um, so I graduated from college. My girlfriend at the time was a couple years younger than me, so a couple years passed by. She graduates. Uh, we get married. We're pretty young. I'm 24. She's 22. We buy a house. Um, pretty quickly after that, we adopt an old 13-year-old dog from her parents. Hindsight again, bad idea. <laughs> um, but um, um, And then a couple of months after that, my dad gets diagnosed with cancer. So, um, my best friend, the best man in my wedding, um, the business partner who I've been working with then for about a year um, is diagnosed with cancer. All along this time, God is doing wonderful things. I'm trying to, or amazing things, I'm trying to re-engage my faith. Betsy and I are bouncing around to different churches trying to find that. Um, Coincidentally, um, the couple that we lived across the street from had just bought the house across the street as well, so we moved in about the same time. Um, right at our age. So naturally, we hit it off with them. Um, and Nick, the husband, had just started going to a Bible study. Hmm. Um, and he asked, he knew that we were bouncing around to different different churches, and, you know, I'm trying to engage a faith, my faith, nothing's really sticking. And so he asked if I wanted to come. Huh. Right place, right time. So I jump at the opportunity. Um, so I start going to this Bible study, and it's being led by um, a guy named Ron, who's here today. Um, and going back to my investment theme, who really invested in me, um, he, he had a way with mat- the, the, from a faith perspective for, uh, with the material that just resonated with me, 
um, easy to understand, not Bible beating, just here, you know, here's what it says, un- this is how we take it, understand it. He was also good from a business standpoint as well. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, me being young in my career and all of that, I asked him if he would mentor me. Hmm. Um, I don't think I put it in those words, but um, that's pretty much what's been going on now. Hmm. We, meet, we meet every week and have for the last nine years. And so Ron has, has taken time to invest in me, which has allowed me to be where I am today. So again, my investment theme of from my parents to my wife to a guy just living across the street to now Ron, to Ron then and now um, has gotten me to where I am. Sure, nine years of, uh, of investment. Wow. One, one-on-one, that, weekly. That's custom. Weekly. Now let's go back to your father's death because mm-hmm. you... Uh, for a lot of folks, none of us want a customized experience where death or trial or difficulty grows us. And yet what I often hear from folks is it was a difficulty that grew us. So how did, how did your father's cancer um, become a customized path to deepen your faith? Yeah, sure. So um, like I said, uh, when Betsy and I got married, I'm 24, she's 22. I'm new in business, uh, working with my dad, uh, best friend, best man at my wedding. Um, he gets diagnosed with cancer, and um, uh, it, it was a, obviously a very difficult time. But the cancer that he got diagnosed with was one that the doctors felt super confident about. We caught it at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and 95% of the people who get that cancer are smokers. Hmm. As my dad said, he was just a lucky 5%. Yeah. So, uh, and that's just kind of the, that, the attitude that he had. And so mm-hmm. they put him on radiation, and again, radiation doesn't have the side effects that chemotherapy do. So that's again, he's attacking this. You know, not having some of the side effects, he's winning, the cancer's going away. Um, and then we get about a year, year and a half into um, uh, the initial diagnosis and um, kind of the reality of the, of the disease hits. Hmm. Um, uh, the cancer comes back and it comes back in spots where they're like, we can't fight this with radiation. We need to, we need to go after it with chemotherapy. Hmm. Um, so um, the, 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 the chemotherapy took its toll physically on them. Um, hmm. What probably a lot of you have dealt with and around whatever, um, and so physically he was beaten down, uh, it, it, but mentally and spiritually it couldn't, it, it just couldn't touch him. His his attitude was uh, was contagious, and people couldn't understand his attitude and our attitude as a family of how we had so much joy yeah. and uh, how we had hope and what we had hope in mm. and the hope in that the hope that we knew that Jesus had defeated death on the cross mm-hmm. and that we knew that my dad should it come to that was also going to defeat death yeah um, so my dad would fly my sisters who were out of town at the time he would fly them in we would have time together there was fellowship I'd lie if, there were, if I didn't say there was crying um, and there was but we had a joyful we had a joyful experience together mm. Mm. So, um, late 2007, uh, Dad's been battling cancer. Um, quick side note on that, the couple that had lived across the street from us, Liz, um, she was a nurse. She happened to be a nurse in the same facility, the same room that my dad got his chemotherapy every single day. Wow. Tell me that's, not, tell me that's coincidence. You're never going to get me yeah. to believe it. So, um, late 2007, doctors come to him and said it's spread to areas that uh, we're not going to be able to fight it anymore. Wow. Um, the, uh, the cancer spread, um, you've got two options. You can um, go on some really heavy-duty uh, chemotherapy. It's going to make you sick, and you're not going to feel well, and it may extend your life a couple of months. Or you can uh, just say the heck with the chemotherapy and take what you've got, live the last uh, months that you've got, six to nine months is what they were thinking at that point, um, as healthy as you can. And my dad, being the guy that he was, um, he said, uh, I'll take what I got. Wow. Um, and um, so 
from from then on, he got as healthy as he could get, and um, almost eight years ago today, March 28th, 2008, um, I'm at home getting ready for work. My mom calls, and she says, you know, you better you better come. This is uh, this is probably it. This is your final chance to say goodbye to your dad. Um, and so the reality starts to sink in then. I finish getting dressed. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not thinking that this is the end, but I'm going to mom's house. I'm in a suit, ready to go to work afterwards. And I'm not 10 minutes away from the house, and my sister calls, and she said, Dad just died. Oh. And um, the reality of that sinks in, and the, the emotion of that. And, and I would, again, be lying if I didn't have fear and disappointment and anger and all of those emotions that you get. Um, but eventually I had um, a peace, hmm. and I had Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving because I knew where Dad was. Yeah. I knew that um, that hope that we had, that where he was going, that's where he was. Hmm. Um, so for 57 years, my dad lived well, led well, and he died well. Hmm. And I still remember to this day, um, and I still use it, and I'm, I think that he's probably happy that I am, is that he would tell people is that my bags are packed, I know where I'm going, and I'm ready. And if that's not confidence, I don't know what is. Wow. I love that idea that you had confidence even in the midst of you know, really the darkest hours. I, my dad and I also are great friends. I can't imagine uh, that as well. Well, part of uh, Josh and I talking about just the experience of grief and how God uses these difficulties is we thought no one expresses the feelings of grief and longing to see someone better than James Taylor. So as his next song, maybe as you think about grief moments in your life, think about these words and the kind of confidence that Josh was able to have and his dad had in the midst of facing uncertainty, is that the kind of thing that you'd like to have as well? Let's listen together. Thanks, Josh. And one of the things that we try and do as a church that God and Jesus was so good at was meeting people during their difficult times. And it's one of the things I'd like to talk about today because... Often folks would come up to our 10 and 11, 10 service and say, hey, why do you do James Taylor? Why don't you do Amazing Grace? And, and then you listen to lyrics like that, and you're like, oh my goodness, what could express grief better than that? And so even in our customized approach to music at our church, it's really trying to find just the right song to give voice to what it looks like to struggle uh, or grieve or to wonder. And whether it's the death of your father or whether it's a tragedy, I just about a month ago we had a guy attending our church and... Um, he said, boy, I need you to come down to the hospital. And so I went down to the hospital, and uh, they're in their 40s. And he said, my wife just had uh, a double stroke and a heart attack. And, oh, my goodness, everything's changed. You give messages about how, how to trust God amidst the difficulty. And we're, we, my wife and I talked regularly about how the fact that we really haven't had any major tragedies. And now I'm facing an incredible unknown. So as I'm in the hospital room talking with him, he just shared how Many people in the church, customized, have come down and prayed and brought meals and talked and checked and, and texted or, or taken care of family or needs in different ways. And So I called him this week just checking up. Hey, I know it's the first uh, week back at work and you're still you know, not sure what the, the future holds. You know, how can we help and how are you doing? And he said, well, uh, my wife is able to communicate with sign language with one hand, um, but I, I don't know sign language real well. Um, she kept it up better than I did, thank goodness, because she's starting to communicate. And I said, well, we've got another friend of the church who specializes in, in, in speech, uh, in sign language. And I said, do you mind if I, I exchange phone numbers? Oh, my goodness, yes. And so I put a quick uh, text in and, and got that person connected to this person. It turned out they were on their way downtown, and they were going to go by the hospital anyway. And then he called the next day. How'd that go? Oh, my goodness. I was able to communicate with my wife, and we were able to figure some things out and got me some resources. And 
We don't always do it well, but that's, that's different than just everyone comes to a big church and you're a cog in a wheel and there's another big chair. It's how do we create customized care for you, for your family, for, for me and my family? How do we help each other during the times when we're knocked off our feet? And we're going to see today Jesus is going to interact with two people who are knocked off their feet. Uh, a woman named Mary and Martha, and they both have had the exact same circumstance. They both just lost their brother. And it's amazing because in the exact same circumstance, exact same situation, Jesus is so customized, he will approach the two different people in the same situation totally different because he knows he wants to meet them in a way that they can best feel the hope, feel the friendship he's trying to offer to them. And what we're going to discover today is that you will lay everything at the feet of someone who was there with you when you were knocked off your feet. And if you've had one of those moments when your kids are rebellious and everybody didn't pretend that their kids were all, you know, obedient all the time. Somebody really stayed with you during that time and helped you as you were going, oh, my goodness, what do you do here as a mom? Or maybe a time in your business where things weren't going the way you want or some malicious gossip gets spread in the community and you find out who your real friends are. And you remember that for decades because the person who was there with you when you were knocked off your feet, when you went through a divorce, when you went through a challenge, when you had real pressure on you, you find out who your friends are, your colleagues are, and those friendships mean so much to people who are there with you when you were knocked off your feet. And Jesus is going to be there for Mary and Martha, and he's going to have two customized style for them. And I think what we can learn here is, one, what Josh talked about, how do you have faith in facing death, a real confident faith that can be rubbed into your grief, but also how do you approach people in different circumstances differently based on where they are in their journey? And I love what Jesus does here. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to encounter Mary and Martha when they are knocked off their feet. Here's what happens in the passage. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary that anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with hair. Now, she's not going to anoint his feet until, until later. But by the time they write this book, she is known, famous through history, as the woman who washed Jesus' feet with some oil. We'll talk about that later. But the reason she's going to wash his feet and lay this at his feet is because of what happens in this passage we look at today. Whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sister said to him, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. And they'd seen Jesus heal people. They'd seen him come and help strangers. Certainly, he'd been in their house. He'd been friends. He loved Lazarus. They support his ministry, the family did. Jesus, please come, help our brother, the one you love, who is sick. But Jesus doesn't get there in time. And Lazarus has died. And now Mary and Martha, these two sisters, are grieving the loss of their brother. They are knocked off their feet. Their dreams, their hopes, their family. Is this fair? Why did God do this? Why didn't Jesus come? Why couldn't he prioritize? Why couldn't he move faster? All these questions are going through their mind. And Jesus will come and interact with each one of them during this time in different ways. Notice the first thing he does is interact with Martha. He's going to offer Martha truth and hope in her journey. Very differently does with Mary. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And and already we see a difference. Martha's like, Jesus is nearby. I want to talk to him. Why weren't you here? What's going on? I, I want to have a confrontation. I want to discuss this. I want to know what's happening here. Mary was like, Jesus is coming. I'm just collapsed in a heap, sitting in my house, grieving over the loss of my brother. Already we see two very different personality styles. And Jesus is going to reflect those two customized styles and how he interacts. 
And they're both going to say the same thing. They both start the conversation by accusing Jesus, being mad at Jesus. Where Nathaniel had doubts about God, these folks are mad at God. This is your friend. And notice what Jesus does. He responds differently, but with with Mary and Martha, he's going to respond differently to their accusations. They both start with the exact same phrase. Martha turned to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, if you had gotten here. But then she throws in a line that Jesus customizes his approach to. But even though I'm mad, and even though you could have, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, you're not going to hear this from Mary. You're going to hear a glimmer of, I'm, I'm open to what you might want to do. I want to hear. I want to have a conversation. What's going on here? How can you help? I know God, he, he's healed some, some people through you. I know that if you ask God, he'll tell you what to do in this situation. And Jesus then engages with her with hope in the midst of her grief and faith. Here's what he says. It's really interesting what he says. He, he offers the same thing Josh talked about. He says, your brother will rise again. Yes, he's died now, but one day, at the end of time, because he put his faith in me, I will raise his body and he'll be in heaven. You'll see him again. And that's the hope that Josh talked about that he had, even in the midst of grief. But look what happened. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, well, let's talk about this. Notice how he's engaging with her with words, with truth, with hope. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, you're going to live again. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die permanently because you'll be in heaven with God. Do you believe this? Look at the engagement, the questions, the dialogue. None of this he'll do with Mary. None of this content, none of this theology lesson, none of this here's the truth to rub into your grief. None of this he'll say to Mary. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ which means the anointed one. Many people think Jesus Christ, that's his last name, because your dad always said, Jesus Christ. No, that's not his last name. The word Christ means the anointed one. That'll be important in a second. I believe you're the anointed one, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now notice this. Jesus comes to Martha and offers her, in her grief, based on how she interacts with him, I know God can still give you hope that you'll see your brother again. Truth, I am the resurrection. I'm going to defeat death for everyone in just a few years. Very customized in his approach. And what's interesting is over the years, you know, we as a church have had a chance to really develop a very customized approach to dealing with families. So we do a lot of funerals here in this room. A lot of funerals. A lot of times, Kenny or Albert are singing a song and, and we're working with the family and we customize a service every time to really reflect the story the life of whoever's died. And sometimes those have been stories we've customized. We've had several folks who've committed suicide over the last couple of years. We've asked the family, do you want to talk about that? Because a lot of people don't want to talk about it. And so they have the grief and then they have the guilt and the shame. The family says, no, I want to talk about that. And so we will customize the service to talk about the fact that though you've heard that suicide is unforgivable, the Bible doesn't say that at all. A lot of things cause suicide. Mental issues, chemical changes, and it's all forgivable. You can't even separate yourself from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor principality, nor, nor power, nor wits can separate you. And we'll talk about that to, to, to speak into the family so you don't have that shame and that guilt spreading through generations of secrets. Other times we'll do a customized funeral, which might be just a couple of us. I remember John and I sitting next to a, uh, 
a gravestone with just two people there one time, a very customized personal funeral. Being there in the midst of difficulty with the family. Talking, having conversations just like Jesus did here about the fact the reason we put bodies in the ground is because Jesus says that he will give us a brand new body and that you're not in heaven as a Casper the Friendly Ghost. You get a brand new body that can eat and that can hug. I remember this one gravestone that family's like, Christians believe that? We just had this great discussion as they were interacting with us on, on what the hope of the resurrection is all about. Other times, you know, just tragedy striking, you know, in our community, we've had lots of tragedies in the last couple of years. And I tell you, it's our youth team that's the first one to be there to help when there's a suicide or a death or a tragedy in the schools. And it's our volunteers, it's our youth team that go in and are praying with kids, and talking with kids and listening with kids and trying to customize and find a way to meet us in the midst of our difficulty and, and answer questions. Why did God allow this? And, and what's going to happen because of this? Even the last couple of years, we've been trying to figure out how to do student ministry, and we're still trying to figure out the best way to do it. You know, we went from a Sunday morning program to realizing that if we could do neighborhood groups like Young Life the last couple of years, we've got a lot more students in our student ministry now because we're meeting in neighborhood groups, and we're still trying to figure out how to improve that beyond it. But we're trying to figure out how do we customize to meet kids and create relationships where they're at. Because that's the heartbeat of what we're attempting to do as a church. We want to meet people like Jesus does with Martha, meet you where you're at. I read a book when I was back in college by a guy named Sheldon. The book is called Severe Mercy. It's a very interesting book because he was a skeptic. He was a professor at Oxford, and he became friends with C.S. Lewis, famous C.S. Lewis of the Narnia series, famous C.S. Lewis, the top thinker of the day of Christendom. But he was friends with C.S. Lewis. And so rather than just hearing theology, it was actually personal letters. So this book has actually got 18 personal letters written from C.S. Lewis to Sheldon. It's a love story about how he falls in love with this, this woman named Davy, and they just love each other. I mean, they, it's, a, it's a romantic story filled with a tragedy because as they fall deeper and deeper in love, she becomes a follower of Jesus, and he is not. And he's an Oxford professor. He really can't believe she's getting into this kind of nonsense. And so they're having lots of dialogues, and, and yet their love and their love for each other is so deep, and yet his frustration is, he says, I almost felt embarrassed to say it, but I was jealous of God. I felt like my wife loved God more than she loved me. And I didn't know how to articulate it. It almost felt childish to say it, but that's how I felt. So he began to dialogue with C.S. Lewis to say, hey, how can there be a a meaning in life? And how can there be? There's lots of different religions. And how do you know the Bible's true? And C.S. Lewis is writing back and forth with him. Well, in the midst of all that, things get worse because his wife gets uh, terminal disease. And now he's not dealing with the problem of evil. He's dealing with the problem of evil. I'm losing my wife. What kind of a God would do this? And he's dialoguing back and forth with C.S. Lewis. And his wife has just got this incredible confidence, even as she faces death, saying, this is what my faith means to me. This is, what the, this is why I want you to, to join me. I, I want to spend eternity with you. And he's like, oh, and he's just so conflicted. Because you know, he wants to please his wife, but he just doesn't believe the nonsense. And as he begins to reflect on this, he just reflects on the difference between how the women seem more comfortable with their emotions than men. He writes this. I love how honest he is in just reflecting. He writes in third person as he describes this, talking about himself. He had been wont to despise emotions. Girls were weak. Tears were weakness. But this morning he was thinking that being a great brain in the tower, nothing but brain, wouldn't be fun at all. No excitement, no dog to love, no joy in the blue sky, no feelings at all. But feelings are emotions. He was suddenly overwhelmed by the revelation that what makes life worth living is precisely the emotions. 
Maybe girls with their tears and laughter were getting more out of life. Shattering. He checked himself. Well, showing one's emotions was not the same as having them. Still, he was dizzy with the revelation. What is beauty but something responded to with emotion? Courage, at least, partly is emotional. If the best of life is emotional, and if one wants the highest, the purest emotions, the joy was the highest. And in books, joy was found in great love. So he wanted the heights of joy. He wanted to have great love. But in the books again, great love, great joy through love, almost always seemed to go hand in hand with frightful pain. You might lose it. You might be hurt. Davy ends up passing away. And despite her pleading with him to consider faith, despite dialoguing personally with one of the greatest thinkers probably in our time, he said it wasn't the intellectual journey, it wasn't the emotional pain. None of those things, even his wife's pleading, could get him to start to be convinced God was demonstrating himself to Jesus. But he said, when my wife died, that became the customized thing God used to bring me to himself which is a shocking statement for any of us, let alone someone who is a skeptic. Here's what he said. This was the title of the book. Her death, the woman I loved, brought me as nothing else could to know and end my jealousy of God. That death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelmed my life, was yet a severe mercy a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love, because that's the thing that allowed me to know that Jesus had defeated death and that I would see the one I, I loved again. Not that God causes pain, but God is a master at leveraging the worst for the best, and that's what he did here. But there's a lot of content in there. There was a lot of truth in there. There's a lot of hope in there. And that was the kind of journey that Martha needed, and it was a very unique one. Very different from how he interacts with Mary, who's still sitting at home, collapsed in a heap over the grief of what's going on. And notice again how different Jesus interacts with her in the passage. Very different approach. Uh, next passage, or next slide. Jesus comes to the city, and Martha does, Mary does not come out to meet him. Martha does. So he, he talks to a friend to offer to meet with Mary when she's ready. When she, Martha, had said these things... She went her way and secretly, confidentially, it's not a big deal. There's lots of people there grieving. Can I talk to you privately for a second? Mary, the teacher has come. He's calling for you. But he wants to give you your space. He says when you're ready, he wants to call. But he's calling for you. Because she's probably thinking, he doesn't care about me. I asked him to come for my brother. I wonder if God cares about me at all. And there's something about this conversation coming from a friend to her, from a sister to her. Because I talked to Jesus, and I want you to know, he's calling for you. That must have resonated with Mary to say, he still knows my name. I don't understand what's going on, but I guess he still does care. And this is so impactful to her, that this way Jesus approaches it, that Jesus uses personal invitation to show concern. Because look what happens. After Mary hears this, as soon as she heard that, that he cared, that he was there, that he had come, that he was available, she arose quickly. Oh. Now, she knew from a few verses before he was coming, but now that he knew her by name, was asking for her by name, she rose quickly and came to him. Look what Jesus does. Jesus stays in the same place so that Mary, once she was ready, could find him. He made himself available. 
and say, hey, here's the equivalent of here's my phone number, here's my text, any time, day or night, I'm available. Here's how you get a hold of me. Jesus had not yet come into town. He stayed in that place. He was in the place where Martha had met him so that Mary could find him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, because they're all, they're all Jesus is Jewish, um, uh, Lazarus Jesus is a Jewish community, who were with him in the house, comforting her. And when they saw Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to meet there. Oh, she's probably going to weep at the tomb. But she wasn't going to the tomb. Instead, she went past the tomb and she came to where Jesus was. And she saw him and she falls down at his feet. Collapses at his feet. Now, several things here I think are important. One of the reasons, as a church, we've never done radio advertising or television advertising is because of this. Personal invitations. There's something about not, oh, I saw an advertisement for something, but a friend of mine asked me. I think many of you here today, because a friend of you said, you might, I know you don't like church, you might like this, and I know you, and I know what you don't like, and you came because of a personal invitation. When our church began, you know, 15 years ago, 17 years ago, it was folks, you know, living together in Indian Hill who said, let's invite our friends to church. And we wrote out handwritten letters. Hey, this might not be something for you, but we're trying to create exploring places for people who are sort of kicking the tires on faith and equipping environments for folks. And it was personal invitations. When we got in this building five years ago, we had a grand opening um, for the folks who attended, and we passed out personal invitations. Folks get tours of the building, uh, people drinking wine. We had dancing out there, and we just said, it's a great open house. And already that's weird. Wow, you had wine and the church. That's weird. Or maybe it's not for you, depending on your background. And afterwards, we all passed out personal letters that you could write your friends and say, and we gave them a list of all the topics the next year and said, find a topic that you feel like might be helpful uh, for a friend who's going through time of grief or looking for leadership advice or whatever it was. Personal and customized. Same thing Jesus is doing here. In fact, our pastoral team, it's interesting, we'll do trainings on pastoral care. And often when somebody has a death in a family or somebody's lost or, or, or even a retirement, our pastoral team will actually make a mark and they'll call a year later because they know on the, on the anniversary of a death, you're thinking about your loved one. We don't always do it well, but we try and actually call on those anniversaries a month later or a year later and say, hey, I know this is a tough day for you. How can we help? We want to be here for you. Think we can do. Now, that's not build a big church full of people. That's love people, customize, meet people where they are. That's what we're trying to do as a church because when you're loved on like Jesus loves on Mary and Martha here, when you're cared for like this, it is a sacred trust. It's powerful what happens there. It's meaningful. We get a sacred trust. I remember doing a funeral this year where literally it was a, just a, a small family, probably ten people or less, sitting around a graveside. And as we did this private funeral, I just shared. I said, you know, let's just share some stories of what your daddy or grandfather meant to you. And we just told stories. And there were tears. One guy at the, at the funeral said, or one of the guys said, my dad, you know, one thing I've learned the most over the last three months as he's been passing away, my dad taught me how to die. The faith in Jesus, he talked about his whole life. I got to see it in the, in the midst of difficult circumstances. He didn't complain. He had a real hope that he talked about. One of the guys at that funeral wept that day and he came up after me and he said, you know, it's the first time I've cried in 20 years. And I thought, what a sacred trust that I would be invited into this personal moment. And that's what Jesus does with, with Mary, because as Mary comes to him, notice she also is accusing him. She's also mad at him. Her very first statement, she falls at his feet. 
maybe with her fist in the air, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she doesn't add the second parts. But now God will give you whatever you want. She's just collapsed in a heap of grief. And Jesus totally changes his approach. There's no lecture. There's no question. There's no sermon. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, he customized his approach. And he saw all of her friends, the Jewish people with her, were weeping. He groaned in his spirit. Empathy. He was troubled. He took on her trouble. Oh. He said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And in Luke 11.35, it says, Jesus wept. I know that because every time I went to Bible quizzing and had to memorize a verse, I would memorize it. Luke 11.35, because it's only got two words in it. Jesus wept. That's why I know that reference. But it's so powerful that this is the one time where we see Jesus doesn't offer hope and truth, though he has that. To this woman, he offers grief and empathy, because that's what she needed during her time. And as he's loving on her in her grief, look at what the surrounding crowd says. Look at how he loved her. As a church, you may not believe the same thing we believe. You can believe whatever you want. We've come to some conclusions about Jesus and God in the Bible that have given us great hope. But you don't have to believe that. But we hope that you see our customized approach. That you say, man, I love to see people love other people so well. I'm drawn toward that. I'm drawn toward people who would love other people in that kind of approach. That means something to me. And yet we grieve differently. I read a, an article by a guy named Mercer who described how men uh, very much grieve differently and that women often think because men aren't criers or we're not maybe as emotional that uh, we, we don't grieve. But the statistics show that men grieve very, very deeply and often longer even than women do, but just differently. Where women's verbals are, I think it's 80% more words that women use than men uh, statistically. And so the, the thought might be that men don't grieve. And he was writing just about all the things men grieve. And we grieve our careers when we retire. We, we miss our career that we loved. And we, we grieve. What does this next season look like? He talked about going through a divorce and how a lot of weird things he grieved. Besides the pain of the divorce, even when he got remarried and was happily remarried, he still missed his ex-wife. There's something you can't say out loud. He didn't want to be married to her, but there was a grief of, wow, that was a lot of years. And because his wife had moved out of town visitation he was grieving the fact he wasn't going to be the dad he wanted to be he wasn't available the way he wanted to be there was a lot of deep pain that he wasn't even sure how to process or the emotion that we grieve getting older you know i've never been one to put security in my looks i just wasn't even on my radar but now that i'm losing my hair i'm like i remember talking to my brother-in-law and i'm like hey you got your hair what you got you know it's just not a big deal you're losing your hair who cares now i'm losing my hair oh my goodness that's very different isn't it we, we, we grieve aging, we grieve our waistlines changing. And, and he noticed that his dad, when he was going through a time of bereavement, he said his father found himself grieving his wife and he found himself in the workshop just sawing. He wasn't building anything, just sawing. And he said there was something about his dad said, just sawing hour after hour. He was like converting his grief into sweat. It was that physical activity it was a way for him to get his grief out, to just process through his emotions and as I was reading that, I thought, boy, that really resonates with me. 
uh, even though I am maybe more verbal than a typical guy, that idea of physical activity is a way to grieve. And I thought, it reminded me of a time at my last church about 15 years ago, maybe 16 now, uh, I had to let a friend of mine go. And I just brought this guy on staff for our music director. He moved his whole family to town. I'd only been at the church about a year down in the Grange, Georgia area. And about two months into his, maybe six months into his job, it was obvious that it wasn't working out. And part of that was something he wasn't doing right. But a big part of it was I was discovering there was something wrong in the environment we had that I was wondering if I was going to stay there long term. So I remember I was asked to fire this guy and I just was grieving. I had this guy move all the way across town and I should have known the environment and seen the fit and his wife was going to be mad at me and he was going to be mad at me and it wasn't a good fit. But there's also some really things that are broken in our in our environment that maybe I don't have the courage to change. And so I remember uh, just grieving as we let him go. And I remember about a month later, I went to Home Depot and and bought about $2,000 worth of wood. And I built a double-decker deck for about two weeks. I'd come home every day after work, and I'm just pounding. And I'm building. And and as I'm building, I'm just grieving. And I remember all the different... I'm grieving how I treated him and, and, and why I should have done a better job maybe of onboarding him. And I remember grieving that the things he thought were wrong with our environment, I was thinking were wrong with our environment. So I was grieving... I've only been here two years, and I moved my whole family here. And what kind of a dad am I? What kind of a leader am I? Oh, my goodness. And then I thought my resume is going to have that sort of black mark. You only stayed there for 18 months. I throw away resumes of people who only stayed someplace 18 months. Do I have a black? And I'm grieving that I put my family at risk. And I just bought a rental house because I wanted to be there for 10 years, and I was going to use that for my kids' college. And, oh, my goodness, I put myself in bondage because now I'm going to be gone. I won't be able to afford both of our houses. And I just thought, as I'm grieving all this, I'm just pounding. But one of the things I was really grieving was one of the things I didn't like about our environment there is that our church uh, pastor, I was the, the second guy, required us to look into people's financial giving. Part of why we were making this transition with this guy was his giving. And the senior pastor required us, whether small group leaders, volunteers, to guess what people made for a living, guess what 10% was, and have conversations with people if they weren't giving 10%. Oh, and everything about that just felt so wrong and so manipulative and so guilt-based. It just wasn't what I saw Jesus doing. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And it just twisted me up inside. And we didn't look into people. We, we didn't have a custom approach to people's, you know, how's your loving? How's your complaining? How's your kindness? It was just about manipulating people to money. And, oh. and I remember as I was pounding that day, grieving this process, I said, I want to be part of a place that doesn't, use people, doesn't see people for money, that instead loves on people, loves on them well, and they feel so well loved, they say, hey, I want to be part of what you're doing, but it's not guilt, it's not pressure. So when I came here 13 years ago, we talked about the fact that a lot of people don't come to church because they feel like you want their money. And so as you notice, we don't do an offering. It's not because we don't have financial needs. Our custom approach is very expensive. But we don't want people to feel like you're being used. And God doesn't want your guilt money. And I certainly don't want to guilt anyone. I've never felt good about anything I was guilted into, ever, 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 ever. But boy, I know when I am loved on well, when I am cared for well, when I believe in a vision that is, oh my goodness, look how you're educating my kids. Look how you're caring for us during times of need. Look how you're there. Look at the, the types of services you're putting on. Boy, I don't want to just put $10 or 20 or $100. Well, I want to be part of giving to this. I want to be part of that. And so if you wonder, like, why we don't do an offering, it's because for many of you, we don't want you to feel like we're trying to get anything from you. And yet, don't misunderstand that and think that it's not expensive to to do the kind of work we do. But we want 
folks would come up after service and say, hey, how do you, uh, so I think we had five times in the last two weeks, somebody's come up and said, how do you fund this place? I think we had five conversations. I've done on the mission trip, uh, Marcus, our CEO, was asked, and I was asked, and I said, honestly, it's folks who say, I love what you're talking about. I want to be part of what's going on here. How can I do it? Instead of giving, you know, 20 or 100 bucks, saying, I want to give a percentage of my income to what's going on. I want to be part of this. What do you need? And folks would come up and say, hey, why do we have windows if they're always closed? <laughs> well, because those motors don't not work faithfully. And every time we try and use them, they break. So, like, you know, there's $15,000 for new motors. Oh, if I knew that, I might want to be part of that. Or, or why don't you have uh, services on, on Internet, on video yet? Well, we're looking at that. It's about $135,000 purchase above and beyond our, our, our regular online give, uh, regular annual giving. So between now and December... Um, we're thinking about actually putting that so we can do the stuff we do and put it on video to stream it. And folks have said, well, if I knew that, well, I'm not going to give a whole hundred, but I'd like to give 5000 toward that or 10000 toward that. Or So sometimes, and I say, I'm just one of the things I'm not good at as a leader. I, I guess I'm so overreacting to how my last church manipulated people. Sometimes I don't do a good job of communicating because I want to make sure that when we give, it's we give and respond because we've been so well loved by God. And because we've been loved and we see he's been so generous to me, I want to be generous to others. And that's exactly what Mary does here. When somebody is there for you when you're in a difficult time, you will lay everything at the feet of someone who is there for you when you're knocked off your feet. And so remember the story began by Jesus telling us, or John telling us, that this was the same Mary that anointed Jesus with oil? Well, that story will come up in John Six days before the Passover, when Jesus would be crucified, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, he does raise him from the dead, therefore they made him supper. So they're sitting at supper together. It's Mary who he gave truth and hope to. It's, it's Martha. It's Mary who he grieved and wept with. And it's Lazarus sitting there at the table. Look what Jesus has done for us. Look at the hope. Look at the, what he gave us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And Martha is there as the doer serving Jesus. Oh my goodness, what you've done for me. Lazarus is the one who sat at the table with him. You brought back our son, I mean our brother. And Mary, who remembers that Jesus was there for them when they were knocked off their feet took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, what is a pound of spikenard? This very expensive perfume was worth one year's wages. This was an incredibly affluent family, enough that they had one year's of wages just sitting around in perfume. And she said, of all the things I could do with one year's wages, is I want to lay it all down at the feet of the one who was there for me when I was knocked off my feet. And she takes off that spikenard and she pours it on his feet. She then, in an act of incredible kindness and tenderness and intimacy, takes her hair and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. To say, you have done for me what I never could have done. The promise of heaven. The return of my brother. The meeting me in my time of grief. She lays everything at the feet of the one who had been with her when she was knocked off her feet. And as this beautiful moment of generosity is being shown for everyone to watch. All of a sudden Judas goes, what a waste of money. 
of all the things we could have done with that money. I can't believe you're building a big church with that. I can't believe you're using that for, for, for God's stuff. Do you know how many poor there are in the world? This is what Judas says. And the writer tells us that though it sounds like he cares about the poor, was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii a year's salary and given to the poor? This he said not because he really cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he used to take money out of the money box. Oh. He used to take what was put in it. And Jesus turns to him and says, let her alone. She has kept this precious gift, a year's salary. For my day of burial, she understood what I was about, giving my life for others, being generous and dying for others like no one else did. The poor you're going to have with you always, but me you do not have always. And here's what's intriguing. In the Old Testament, whenever a king was anointed, that's what they would do. They would literally anoint a king with oil. They would pour oil over him. So when, when David was king, they poured oil, scented oil over him. So as the king came through town... He would walk directly through town and people would come out and cheer him. And you could smell the king's robes were soaked with oil. You could smell the anointed king. In the book of Song of Solomon, the king Solomon and his uh, fiancée are talking. And she says, whenever I see the king coming, he's anointed with perfumes because you would anoint the king. Remember Jesus' last name is anointed? Mary says, of the best thing I could do with my life, I want to create a scent that will last for a lifetime. Remember, this is three days before, even hours at this point, even before Jesus will be crucified. And Jesus pours this very perfumed, very costly perfume upon Jesus. So much so that he will still smell of Mary's perfume. And he will leave this encounter and he will go to the upper room and tell his disciples that he will be dying for them. And if you smell in the upper room, you could still smell the oil upon his body that Mary gave. That same night he would go to the garden and he'd say, Jesus, God, please, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go to the cross. Is there any other way? And God will say, no, there's no other way. And not my will, but yours be done. And if you leaned into the garden, you could smell he was anointed like the king. He'll then walk down to Pilate, and Pilate will say, which would you rather have, Barabbas or Jesus? Which one is the one represented from God? And if they smelled, they would actually realize that God made it so easy to realize you could actually smell he was the anointed one from God. Pilate will excuse him. He'll be taken up and put on a scourging post. He'd be whipped. He'll be tortured. And in the smell of death and blood, if you leaned in enough, you could smell he actually had the scent of the Christ upon him. He'd be forced to carry his own beam up to Golgotha. By this point, he'd been bloodied. He'd been beaten. Parts of his beard ripped out. The smell of death and blood all around him. But in the midst of all of that death, there was another scent still on his body. A scent that Mary had poured upon him to prepare him for burial, that even on that cross with nails in his hands, there was the scent of the generosity of a woman who laid everything at the feet of someone who was there for her when she was knocked off her feet. And that's why we serve. That's why we give. 
That's why we go on mission trips. That's why just a few weeks ago we have a young man who couldn't have had a surgery that comes all the way here after two years of work to get a surgery, $100,000 he never could afford. The reason we serve others and give generously is because someone who was there for us. There's certain scents that last for a lifetime. I've shared this before, but this is my grandmother's backgammon board. Every time I open this or play backgammon, there's a scent. I can't even tell you what it is. Just there's a smell of this backgammon board. I'm immediately, I can hear my grandma laughing. I can hear my grandma saying, are we going to play AC Ducey? Grandma, we always play AC Ducey. Oh, good. Mary knew that the scent she was going to create would stay with Jesus, would stay with the people. So much so that 2,000 years later, here in Cincinnati, Ohio, we would be talking about an incredibly generous gift of someone who poured out a year's salary because of what Jesus had done for her. The reason we do what we do, the reason we do it in as personalized way as we try, is because we want to create scents that last for a lifetime. The 20 years from now, you're going to hear about a young boy from Belize who wasn't made fun of, who didn't die from malnutrition. You're going to hear about people who have homes. You're going to hear about people at City Gospel, and you're going to hear about folks at any parish ministries. You're going to hear the way in which people begin to find ways they could be better dads or have better marriages or, or kids begin to find faith because that's what we're committed to as a church. We want to be there for you when you're knocked off your feet because when you're loved well, by someone else, you learn how to love others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this experience today and just a reminder of, of how much you love people. And I just ask you help us. Help us to learn to love people as well as you do. Help us to uh, be customized in our approach with our kids, with our employees, with our friends, with our neighbors. Help us not to overstep our bounds. Help us to create space but help us to be people who know how to grieve, how to process our own grief. And Father, I ask that if each person, someone's here today and they're just wishing they had the kind of hope and faith they could rub into their grief, Father, that they would just have an honest prayer saying, God, I want what Jesus talked about. I want what Josh talked about. And if you want to do that, it's really that simple. You just say what Martha said. You can pray in your own heart to say, Jesus, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. And I believe that if I die, you will Raise me on that final day. And his spirit will come and live in you, and you can have the promise of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us today. Sorry that pastor went over today. I'm going to talk to him. He really went too long. Um, if you did come prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on your way out. We'd love to meet you. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hi if you're new to the church. Thanks again.